0: This is the Education Gadfly Show.
1: We do, you know, we're we're running a little bit of a socialist country here. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Seth Gershenson. Seth, welcome back to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: And a happy Halloween. We're taping this on Monday. And so we're just chatting about... Kids and Halloween, it all goes very quickly. My 12-year-old, I think maybe his last time trick-or-treating, at least until it's considered inappropriate. Uh, Enjoy it while it lasts, baby, because it goes fast. Also joining us as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you as well. Well, you know, we're excited to have Seth back on. Seth is a professor at the Department of Public Administration and Policy at American University here in Washington, D.C., And most importantly for our show this week, he is also the author of a new study from Fordham called The Power of Expectations in District and Charter Schools. And we're going to dig into that on Ed Reform Update. All right, Seth. Well, we have been so lucky to get to partner with you on several studies in the past. And in beyond the work you've done for Fordham, you have become one of the nation's preeminent experts on this question around. Teacher expectations and the connection it has to all kinds of positive long-term outcomes when teachers have high expectations for their kids. You've looked at that in the context of grading and grading standards. You've also looked at it in the context of how teachers rate their students when they're asked on surveys about them. Uh, So now you are using these skills and some of the data sources you've dug into before to look at whether there was any differences by sector, district and charter, and actually for some questions, private schools as well. Tell us first what you did and then what you found.
2: In some of my previous work, we try to rigorously test this idea that high expectations matter and that high expectations improve student outcomes. I think a lot of people sort of intuitively think that they do, but prior to really digging into this, uh, the, the evidence wasn't necessarily there. So here we revisit the question using like you said same data as before which is a nationally representative sample of 10th grade students and teachers from about 15 years ago or so and we start by just documenting differences by sector in expectations and there's a very nice and clean expectation question in the survey where teachers are asked about each individual student do you expect that so-and-so will complete a college degree? And that's what, we, that's what we focus on, the college degree margin. Although the results are robust to looking at other margins, like high school graduation or mm-hmm. you know things like that. And I, I like this question a lot because, A, I think we all agree that a college degree is an increasingly valuable and important credential in the labor market. It opens up a lot of doors. It's a, a source of upward economic mobility. So college degrees are important and valuable and useful. And, you know, whether or not a teacher believes or expects that a student will complete one is a pretty straightforward question, I think, compared to some other possible ways of measuring expectations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a very objective question. You know, do yeah. you think that Mike will complete a college degree?
1: And then uh, what's so cool is that you yeah. actually have the data to know whether Mike went on to complete a college degree or not.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that lets us look at, A, you know, how accurate are teachers' expectations? Are they pessimistic or optimistic or close to being right? But also the long run outcomes, like did the student complete a degree, then we can look at the effect of the expectation on completing a degree as well.
1: And so what we find is that uh, you look at both raw data and then also after controlling for things, I think, like demographics and also achievement, maybe? Yeah. And what we find is that indeed charter school teachers and private school teachers tend to be uh, much more optimistic than traditional public school teachers when it comes to similar kids. And that those higher expectations, as you say, end up, you know, you can show a connection to better long run outcomes. And I think part of what motivated
2: the study was a lot of times we think of especially the more successful charter schools as being Charter schools that have some sort of mantra of of high expectations, a culture of accountability, a culture of going to college, things like that. And so, you know, anecdotally, we often would think that, okay, charter school and and certainly private school teachers are going to have high expectations, maybe because of the culture of the school, but also maybe because of the types of students that are enrolling in those schools. And so, like you said, it's really important that we show, yeah expectations are much higher in charter and private schools than in traditional public schools overall, but they're also higher after adjusting for differences in the student body. And you mentioned demographic background, prior achievement, but socioeconomic background as well, like household Mm -hmm. income type measures too. So comparing apples to apples in the different types of schools, expectations are, are higher in the private and charter schools.
1: There's so much I love about this. The notion that expectations matter. Of course, you know, we're big fans of charter schools here and and other forms of choice also. Uh, But I am a little conflicted because, you know, since the time this question was asked, as you say, about 15 years ago, the pendulum has swung on this notion of whether it's good to encourage all kids to go to college, college for all. You know, and I've certainly been a part of that, that come to believe that we went too far in that direction. You know, you look into the data and you say, well, you know, if anything, the traditional public school teachers seem to be better at predicting how far their students actually will go. So they tended to maybe it wasn't as high, but guess what? They were right. So what do we make of that? I mean, is it still just the case that on a question like this, what's actually helpful for the kid is not whether the teacher is accurate. It's whether the teacher errs on the side of optimism instead of pessimism.
2: Yeah, I I think that that's 100 percent right. Optimism, optimism is a good thing, and I, I would push back, you know, against anybody who thinks thinks that it's not. I think that sort of being optimistic about like what a tenth grader might be able to do, it's different from pushing someone into college as a senior who's clearly not ready for it mm-hmm. at that time, mm-hmm. right? And so, in that sense, the expectation about do you expect so and so to go to college as of the tenth grade? I view that more as a as a proxy for the teacher's general attitude towards thinking optimistically, thinking the best for students, thinking that students can learn and overcome obstacles, and just sort of like a a proxy for a general belief that everybody is capable of succeeding.
1: And that's why then we see this relationship likely between these, an answer on a survey, right, and and actual positive long-term outcomes. David, get get in here. Not only, David, are are you my co-host, but David also wrote the foreword for this report, worked with Seth on drafting this up. So what's your take here?
0: Seth has articulated my basic take. One takeaway is that a little irrational optimism is a good thing. But that, I think the the word proxy is really important here, right, regardless of what question you ask. Expectations is a complicated word, right? That could mean a lot of different Mm -hmm. things. We're just not going to get a survey question that's going to ask teachers Exactly what their brain state is as they're teaching at-risk kids, right? You've got to ask these sort of crude questions about college, or you know, does your teacher believe in you? And these are all things that they're probably correlated with what we're really trying to get at, right? Which is this sort of unwillingness to accept failure mm. <laughs> on the part of the teacher, right? I dare I say, no excuses mindset that all great teachers have that is frankly a little irrational, right? Because I had a very brief experience teaching, but if I walked in the door and approached it like, well, what are the odds that Johnny is really going to use this? I would never teach anything. I mean, most people don't use Algebra II and very few people use high school biology. Even folks who graduate from college, they forget most of what they learned in high school, right? You know, what matters is that you sort of willingly suspend disbelief. And there is there's something bordering <laughs> on It's almost double think, Mike, in all honesty, Mm -hmm. there's the part of your brain that knows what's probably going to happen. And then there's the part of your brain that teaches. I think it's really actually healthy and important for teachers to turn one part of their brain off uh, when they go through the classroom door and think with the other part of their brain.
1: But that raises the question then of the so what? Do we have to try to hypnotize teachers into having these irrationally high expectations or Is it more that we just have to figure out a way to hire for this in the first place? So I want to say one thing.
2: It's not blind, irrational optimism, because there are teachers that say, no, this kid's not going to go to college. So it's not totally blind, everyone's going, which I think is important. But this question about like, what are we even answering or or asking with these questions? It was not worded this way, but I, I wish it was. I do think that some teachers answered it this way, and that is, what do you think the best case scenario for this mm-hmm. student is? Mm-hmm. Not you know, what would you bet your retirement account on happening to this kid? Yeah. but if everything goes right, what's the best outcome? and And having a good or optimistic view of that, I think is is what's central to so many good teachers is yeah. that they can sort of see okay, you know, this might be the the most likely outcome, but like, what else is possible?
1: Although it it does assume that college is better than not college, which I think there's a more nuanced debate today about that. In some cases, a two-year degree or, you know, some kind of apprenticeship or the military or, you know, for some kids might be better, not because they can't do
2: college. Yeah. And so again, this is why I think that, I mean, this is a cop out, but, but this question is sort of proxying yep. for a broader idea about like, you know, do you think that the student can live a productive and contributing to society kind of life?
1: Is it about hiring in the first case or, or is there some professional development that can get teachers yeah. to have higher expectations? Is it data? Is it what? what is this?
2: It's all the above. There's certainly professional development for in-service current teachers. And I think that teacher training programs can do a better job of building in uh, this type of mindset and believing in potential at that stage, too. The third thing is just that school culture matters. And I think a lot of successful schools and successful charter schools, even though it's not via formal in service training opportunities, there is a culture, whether it's established by the principal or 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 whatever, other senior teachers or master teachers or whatever, that sort of rubs off on everybody.
1: That's what you're gonna say, David.
0: That is what I was gonna say. I, I let me just triple down on that, Mike. You know, I, I was trying to get in and then of course Seth said what I was gonna say, which is I remember the first time I was trying to figure out what grades to assign. And I kind of looked around and you know went to the vice principal and was like, so you know what's an A? Like, what's an F around here? He's just like, what do you mean? What do we do here? And I was like, yeah, what do we do here? Without getting into sort of my experience too much. I think that's, I think those things are incredibly important, right? If the message that the teacher receives is, come on, you're going to fail that many kids, right? Yeah. Or, hey, you know, the parents are complaining about the amount of homework you're assigning. Or, there are a thousand and one little ways mm-hmm. that really the principal, to be honest, but but also other teachers and and students can create a high a culture of high expectations or not. And it's not just about the words. It's also about what happens when the mm-hmm. going gets tough.
1: And I've got to believe that part of that culture, I mean, one of the best chances to enforce that culture is, is when you are hiring new teachers. And I got to believe that some of the protocols that are out there, Gallup and others that Kind of try to standardize that process, you know, try to get at this question of, you know, especially if you're going to serve a high need school, like, do you believe kids in this school had the potential to achieve at high levels and to really, really hire for that? And I think that that question gets asked at a lot of, of interviews.
0: Let me just say real quick, I know we're short on time, but I I, I agree with that. But I also do think I I really believe that institutions and institutional memory matters. And, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like the old D.C. thing that, you know, the secretary doesn't change the department, right? The department changes the secretary. You know, you take somebody who wants to have high expectations and put them in a difficult situation. Not that that's ever happened to Uh, young teachers, you know, from Ivy League colleges going to any, you know, programs we can think of. You put them in a really difficult situation, you come back two years later, you may not like the results. I think people can be moved one way or the other. And I think it's a a social outcome as much as anything else.
1: Well, excellent discussion, guys. And again, great work, Seth. I really appreciate you doing this for us, but also for the field. So check it out again, Seth Gershenson at the American University, the power of expectations in district and charter schools. Seth, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, yeah, I feel like I ask this every year. You you, you get some trick-or-treaters uh, coming out to your house
3: there? I trip? get maybe five. It's we just so few. Them. I just, you know, of course, we I have not get given them anymore. A, you don't yeah. get them anymore either. Yeah. I think parents yeah. are scared, right? I don't know.
1: Around here, everybody knows there's certain neighborhoods Especially ones where there's like a lot. The houses are kind of close together, and you know, turns into a big party, and it's just more efficient. I mean, these kids, you know, they they do the cost benefit analysis, and and they know, yeah, you got to walk longer in between houses or long driveways. That that is not a good neighborhood for trick or treating. That's why <laughs> you know Capitol Hill is, is with the row houses is hard to beat, right, David?
0: Uh, yeah, we get the occasional senator, Mike. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> People
1: uh, going as a senator are actually the senators. <laughs> That's a good question. It's so hard to tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had a great costume plan, and then it didn't come on time. I was going to go as inflation. I had this big, big egg costume, and I was going to put a price tag on it. You know, <laughs> eggs have gone up more than anything. Yes. And,
3: and and kudos to Uncle Thomas for giving us Halloween candy, Mike. Mm, I got it in the yeah. mail. Big old bag of chocolate. Yeah. Just such a nice little thing for oh, uh, us Fordham employees. Yes, we do. You know,
1: we, we're, we're running a little bit of a socialist country here. <laughs> or so we try. All right. Well, Amber, well, enough about that. What you got for us for, for our second dose of research? Because we just had a great conversation mm-hmm. with Seth about his fantastic new study. On teacher expectations and charter and district schools, but you're going to give us another study as well.
3: That's right. I always say this, folks just can't get enough of research. So we have a new study out from four researchers at Calder, Bacchus, Cowan, Goldhaber, and Theobald. Sort of sounds like a rock band or something, that examines teachers' contributions to school climate by isolating it, which they refer to as climate value added. I love everybody's making up their own version of. Value added now.
1: This is, this is good. We, we are contributing to that ourselves. Yes.
3: yes. Uh, okay. Climate value added and how it varies relative to student race. They use administrative data from Massachusetts for students in grades four through eight and 10, covers 2011 through 2019. They have enrollment, course, transcript, test score data, disciplinary data. And they combine all these with teacher assignments so they can generate student and teacher linked data sets. And for 2018-19, they can also link these data to statewide student climate data, which includes measures of engagement, safety, and environment, including the quality of the classroom activities and of the student-teacher relationship. Descriptively first, they find that climate measures are systematically lower for Black than white students and tend to be higher for Asian students. And then when you look at the specific climate measures, there are nine. And then within those nine, they're even more embedded in there. Uh, But when you look at the specific climate measures, though, Black students do report more positive experiences on classroom participation and instruction. So that's good. Uh, But lower on measures related to school personnel and other students and to bullying. And let's also find that perceptions of students of color and white students reflect different perceptions of the same environment more than differences in the learning environment. In terms of calculating climate value added, they use standard measures that have been used for student test scores and other outcomes. The two-step value added model for teacher effects on survey responses and includes a boatload of student, classroom and school covariates. They are looking at variation within school, grade, subject, year, and include measures to mitigate concerns that within school sorting might explain their results. Man, they spent a lot of time on that. These guys these guys know their stuff. Uh, but anyway, lots of pages about the sorting thing and how they've dealt with that. Uh, and their key finding is that climate value added does predict within school variation in students' perceptions of school climate. Teachers whose students report positive feelings about climate also contribute more to student test scores and to an aggregate of non-test outcomes, too. So they have this aggregate of non-test outcomes, absences, suspensions, and grade progression, and also shows uh, that positive uh, relationship there. And the effects are larger in elementary grades than in that high school grade. Uh, Maybe this is because they're self-contained classrooms in elementary grades. Perhaps that's what's going on. Specifically, they estimate that one standard deviation in climate value added corresponds to about 0.1 standard deviations on the climate survey scale and about 0.02 standard deviations in student test scores. And then it's like, okay, are we looking at different things? They actually estimate that uh, there's a correlation of about 0.20 to 0.25 between test value added and climate value added. And then they look at differences in student perceptions of climate. They say, well, they're at least partially mediated by teachers. Uh, Not surprising there. Uh, Racial matches between student and teachers improve student views of learning climate, especially for Black students. So we've heard that before. Uh, Still, teachers who improve school climate tend to do so for all kids. The correlation in reports of climate value added for the same teacher by white students and students of color is about 0.7. And finally, uh, teachers whose students of color report better school climate in one year also have higher reports of school climate among students of color in other years. So they're beginning to think, okay, is this evidence of culturally responsive teaching?
1: A lot to unpack there, but really great stuff. And you're right, all-star cast doing that study. did Say again that the relationship between uh, the test score value added and the school climate value added, how uh, high was that?
3: Correlation, 0. 0.20, 0.25.
1: That's some, but not that's huge. Right. That's right. Um, so, again, and, and we've seen this in some other studies, including our study on attendance value added, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we found that schools that are good at getting kids to show up are somewhat different from the schools that are good at boosting test scores. So, this notion that uh, either when you're judging schools or judging teachers, test scores and what we're learning is, you know, they, they measure important things, but uh, they're not a great proxy for everything. The idea that black and white students can be in the same school or I guess in the same classroom and have very different perceptions of school climate or classroom climate, that's disappointing, if not surprising. I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
0: Yeah, that's about what I think about that, Mike. <laughs> 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 I, I,
3: I... But when you dug down the specifics, it was kind of confusing, right? Because they were more positive on classroom participation and instruction. Yeah. I'm like, how do you separate instruction and participation from the teacher more generally? I don't don't know.
0: Amber, do you have at your fingertips some of the different dimensions of climate?
3: Let's see. What were there. There were three big buckets of engagement, safety, and the environment. Those were the three buckets. And there were nine underneath of that.
0: I don't know. I guess I'm curious to know which of those is most strongly correlated with test scores. That's not even really what I'm curious about. I guess I'm curious to know which of those are most co- strongly correlated with long-term outcomes. Climate is such a broad umbrella. I mean, if you asked me to improve climate, I wouldn't know what to
1: do. Well, and, and back to this question you know, about, again, the, these white-black differences in the same school is, or classroom, is what we're hearing is that the black students maybe are saying, oh, they think the instruction is engaging, and but maybe they don't feel safe. You know, maybe they uh, feel more peer pressure from their peers or something.
3: I'm quite sure in this very long paper that the answers to some of these questions are in there. (laughs) (laughs) One of our dream team is going to reach out and say, Amber, why didn't you look at page 28? All right. Yes,
1: Dan, let us know about uh, these questions. Super good, important work. My last question, Amber, is like, does this make you at all optimistic that we can try to start using more of these measures when we're evaluating teachers or schools in the real world? It does, actually.
3: Obviously, this is statewide. It's not optional. You know, they had pretty good, you know, participation rates on these things. Mm -hmm. And I think going back to the Met work, how long has that been now, Mike? Mm-hmm. Man,
1: Ten years at least. At
3: least, uh, where we began to see some good you know, data on student surveys uh, mm-hmm. and the reliability of student surveys relative to test score data and student performance. So I think we are. I think we're starting to build a, a fairly credible database around these climate student surveys.
1: Well, good. Well, we will leave it there because that is all the time we've got for this week. So thank you, Amber. But until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap
2: Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.